Today's TribCast is presented by Accenture. Revenue agencies must adapt their governance models to keep up with digital disruption. Is it time to rethink your data strategy? Learn more at Accenture.com. And the Texas Association of Community Colleges. Over the past 15 years, the number of degrees and certificates awarded by Texas community colleges has increased 177%. Be a part of the Texas success. Learn more at TACC.org. Texas talking, oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking, I'm gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking, tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are Texas guys love. Texas talking. Hi everyone, this is State Representative Pat Fallon. I'm a candidate for the Texas Senate in District 30. The fourth estate asked me to actually do them a favor. I wasn't uh, all that keen, but then I thought of Evan Smith and said, you know what, I think I can do this. I wanted to thank you all for joining us, and I very much hope that you enjoy this week's TribCast. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, February 21st with your Texas Tribune TribCast, our weekly podcast on all things Texas politics and policy. I'm joined this week by grumpy CEO Evan Smith. That's all you're giving me? You're not even going to speak today. I'm going to mime the entire podcast. <laughs> oh, good. Well, if you're watching on Facebook Live, that's where uh, you'll get it. Yep. Uh, reporter Jay Root. Just a good old boy from Liberty, Texas. Speaking of miming, <laughs> miming is French, and you're sort of vaguely French by association. Not moitié. Right. Uh, right. And reporter Shannon Ajmabadi. Thanks for having me. Not yes, French. It, not <laughs> French. Second time on the TribCast. Evan. All right. Well, Jay, I want to start by talking about um, one hell of a story that you had at the end of last week, looking at, uh, I think the key words in this story were George P. Bush and secret mansion. Yeah. um, You know, this was for me, really a disclosure story. It looks to me very much like he's found a loophole, um, basically where he doesn't have to disclose his house. You already don't have to disclose your home address. So the idea that you would have to disclose your home address on on a personal financial statement at the ethics commission that that's not a problem anymore because they take the they've taken those off or they they redact them when you request it but he actually had two properties uh, a rental property here and then a, a very nice house uh, in a very nice part of Austin that if you go on to the Travis County appraisal district website you wouldn't see now the rental house because of our so reporting you, you wouldn't see it in the sense that it wasn't there but the address was redacted it's as if it doesn't now, exist the, the rental property it was as it was as if it didn't exist yeah. you couldn't see it at all so now you, it's on there right. because of our reporting well so what do you have to report and not report when it comes to your personal property i mean aren't you supposed to report that you own properties because you are you are and um you know th- this really highlights how weak our disclosure is in Texas, you know, as you might recall, we didn't know about Rick Perry's double dipping, and we didn't know about David Dewhurst's vast wealth until they ran for federal office. And these federal disclosures are better than they are in Texas. But to answer your question, um, you you are supposed to disclose any real property, any beneficial interest in real property, and you're also supposed to disclose any loans of over a thousand dollars. Well, he had a loan, as it turns out. It was from the bank of one of his, of a very large contributor who has given him over a hundred thousand dollars, and the loan, the house, 
uh, none of that was disclosed on the personal financial statement. So if you look at that, you would have no idea that he got a loan from the bank of a contributor. And that's the kind of thing that the, this ethics law was written for, was to make sure. Now, I'm not alleging that there was a problem with this loan. Yeah, what's we wrong with know. the fact that it's a loan from a contributor? It sounds to me like the problem is that the loan wasn't disclosed. Exactly. But the fact that it was a loan from a contributor specifically doesn't. No, I mean, nothing's, there's nothing to say you can't say have a loan imply. from a contributor. No, Something, right? absolutely not. We have no clue about that. They any, would have any to disclose loan would the be a, loan any, agreement. Any we loan not disclosed agreement. would be a problem. Right. So, right. It's, so the issue yeah. is the lack of disclosure. Or is Correct. it really an issue? I mean, what does the law say when it comes to... Well, it, it's, you know, clear as mud, basically, mm -hmm. um, because a beneficial interest, the way it's defined, is written in such a way that he looks like he found a loophole. Because what he did was he put the house in a trust, made himself and his wife the beneficiary of the trust. They were So they were both the creators and the beneficiaries of this trust. And that would allow him not to disclose anything that you just listed. Right, because it, what it, you know, when, when it comes to beneficial interest in real property, it doesn't really meet that definition because the, 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 the legal title to the property is held by this trust. So he, he could say, do you have any property? No, I don't. Well, this trust does. Well, So, so when you ask the Bush people right. about this, what they say? that I was part of the anti-Trump cabal. How do you like that one? Well, they also said, buddy, the guy faces death threats. You know, it, we right. have the right to keep all this stuff secret. They said it was fake news. Um, they also said that it was because the reason why he, they went to all this trouble to put it in this trust and also to keep the rental property off of the personal, off, not of the personal financial statement, it was disclosed there, but off of the Tra Travis County Appraisal District was because they had have received death threats for quite a long period of time. I did ask them, I was like, look, can you show me the a police report? I won't publish it, just show it to me so I'll have some uh, assurance that what you're telling me is true, and I, I didn't get anything on that. But so the response is, is that old saw fake news. Well, that old saw fake news followed by updating your personal disclosure. Right, it's not you're fake if it's true, and it's not fake if your response after you say it's fake is to then update your disclosure. Right. Well, there, there was something else that they that they failed to disclose, and that is is that again it goes back to the donor. Um, Brandon Steele, who um, owns a bank in East Texas that made this loan, but he also owns another company that employed Amanda Bush for almost two years. And what we discovered was that they disclosed one year, year one, but not year two, i.e. 2016. And so they had to fix that. They also had to fix um, these some of these Alamo-related nonprofits. You're supposed to disclose your uh, membership on any uh, boards or, you know, uh, company boards, and he, they didn't disclose that. So that has also been disclosed. Uh, but the loan and the house, still nothing. I, I'm confused I about what is going on in Bush world. This is a guy who comes into office, and it's his first elective office piece, but he's a guy who comes in with the family business, you know, sort of enveloping him. This is not the first time that somebody in the Bush universe has been in public office. There is theoretically a Bush family manual on how to act in public office. Yeah, I'm not confused. There are a bunch of people trying to sink him. I'm, I'm conf well, I'm confused why he seems to be making so many unforced errors, or his team seems to be making so many unforced errors. That may be that Oppo, I think Oppo in a competitive is hot right campaign. Now. Yeah, but it's only Oppo if it's true. Mm. Otherwise, it's bullshit. 
And apparently a lot of the stuff that's been said about him, mistakes that have been made during his campaign, stories that have been written about him, they can call fake all they want. The reality is they're not fake. And I just wonder where's the political operations competency in all this? Well, my, my take, you know, look, when somebody wants to give me a quote or send me a statement or whatever, I get that. That's their right to send whatever statement they want. And I'm not going to sit around and take it personally, whatever you call it, fake news. But I am mystified. I am mystified because I covered George W. Bush when he was governor. And I remember Karen Hughes very well. And Karen Hughes was, you know, was seen as a hard ass, okay? But she was also very effective. And I remember getting a memo from her in which she said, it, you know, I, I found out I had a missed call yesterday. I don't want that to ever happen again. Here's my home phone number. That world doesn't exist anymore. Well, yeah, but, I, but I thought, though, I thought that the George P. people would not have this. You know, I mean, they're, they're taking on this sort of pro-Trump, that everything is fake news thing. And I just, I, that but, surprised but, but me. But in that fairness, Emily knows this. In fairness, I mean, Shannon may have heard this in her reporting as well. The, the fact is that everybody now says fake news when they don't like something you wrote. Right. Or they would have written it differently themselves or the wish that you just hadn't written it at all. And that, that's everything, right. Everything but... that you don't like is not fake news. I mean, I think fake, this... has a, fake has a word, a, a definition to it. Totally. And that means false. I mean, I think this story is part of the larger state ethics narrative. Like, I'm not sure George P. or his people did anything particularly wrong in this case other than finding a, quote, mansion-sized loophole to drive right through. I mean, everybody else is, is taking advantage of these kinds of things, too. I think that's a sort of larger conversation around the state's ethics. I think where he has stepped in it has been, you know, the questions around Harvey and, uh, you know, Harvey relief and whether there needs to be the rainy day fund needs to be tapped. I mean, there have been sort of some political blunders that I think are separate and apart from, you know, the same sort of ethical bad will that, you know, everybody employs yeah, in and around the, the Capitol. The difference is that that he's in a competitive primary where any misstep becomes an issue mm -hmm. and the response to the inquiries about it made it more of a story and not less of a story. Right. Right. Yeah, but you know, yeah. if you if you don't have to disclose um, a a house that's probably worth two million dollars, it's appraised on the rolls at one point five million, and you don't have to disclose a loan that happens to be connected to one of your big donors, then we have a disclosure problem in the state of Texas. Uh, David asks on social media: Since when is a four-bedroom home a mansion? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. You know, um, it's a 4,000 square foot home that, as I said, it's appraised at 1.5 million. The loan amount is $850,000. We don't have sales disclosure in Texas, so I don't know how much he paid for this house. I don't know how much he put, how much he put down. I don't know the terms of the loan agreement. There's a lot I don't know. You can get that off Zillow or something? But, you know, for most <laughs> Texans, for most Texans, I, I you know, if, if you ever go to Mount Bunnell uh, in Austin and you look up there and you're wondering who's living up there in those nice houses, that's where he George lives. P. Okay, that's where he lives. It's yeah. in that part of town. So uh, I would venture to guess that most Texans who would drive through that neighborhood and see that 4,000 square foot house would say it's a mansion. Which billionaire on the Forbes list wrote to you and said, how is a four bedroom house a mansion? <laughs> right, David dollar <laughs> the, signs. The average, exactly, the average person would consider a $2 million yeah. house to be pretty mansion-y. Well, Jay probably knows because he probably rolled by on his electric scooter. Well, uh, you know, it's a, a four-bedroom house in Liberty, Texas is a mansion, right? Yeah, that's absolutely. Yeah. Right. All right, well, just a reminder, uh, social media and viewers. Way, you know, I'm going to have yep. Patterson, Jerry Patterson, tomorrow morning at the Austin Club, and I suspect mm -hmm. this, this will subject come up? may come up. It yes. may. Right. 
All right, well, you can post your questions in the comments and we'll try to get to them. Uh, we also want to thank one more TribCast sponsor, the Texas Association of School Boards. Stand up for Texas public schools. They're counting on us. Take action. Shannon, I want to talk about a story you and Jay published. Uh, actually, Jay's, Jay's had a big week, lots of stories landing. Um, that's yet another look at the troubled Texas Facilities Commission. What's the background there and what did your reporting reveal? Um, so our story today is about how nine employees of the Texas Facilities Commission departed the agency over the course of about two days in late January. And they were leaving at the time. So, you know, we knew that Harvey Hildebrand, who was then running the shop, was in some hot water. We saw a lot of internal emails of sort of dysfunction. Did we know that all these other people were basically getting sent out along with him? Um, we kind of had a sense when we were there at the meeting in late January. The background here is that we had written a story that was published in December about internal dysfunction and really just a high level of drama at the Texas Facilities Commission. An understatement. <laughs> right. What did you call well, it, high And there school? was drama the day that we were there, too, mm -hmm. when they yeah. fired Harvey. Remember that? So we had a sense that there were more, that there were actually eight other employees that had been fired. Mm -hmm. But it took several weeks for the employee, or for the agency to just confirm which employees had been fired to us. And were these employees, like, you know, Harvey Hildebrand's people? Were they his sort of right and left hands? Or were these? There was a lot of really high-level executives that departed. The His kind of right hand, the operations chief left, the general counsel left um, several the other deputy director, director um, right. were they not forthcoming about this uh, Peter from the Moss, which had been there for a long time over basically over he was mm -hmm. the one who oversaw the issue with the uh, I think he was quoted on the rat story uh -huh. that oh right <laughs> that Edgar that Edgar wrote Edgar about did. rats yeah. running all over the uh, right. HHSC which building. was also <laughs> supposed to be the responsibility of the Texas Facilities Commission by the way right I mean so what do all of these high-level departures signify for the agency going forward I just I a mean, new regime, basically. To, yeah. You know, they cleaned house. I mean, they really did. You know, uh, there, when we were there the day that they fired Harvey, I mean, they had locksmiths there. People were walking out crying with their plants and boxes. I mean, it was really. So is this basically just a confirmation of your reporting that the place was run totally poorly screwy. or that it was completely messed up from a drum? As, because you would take away from it if they're clearing out the mm -hmm. upper ranks of the, of the facilities commission, then it's suspicions confirmed. Right. I mean, I think that... Um, or is there potentially yeah. something else going on there? No, I think it was related to what we revealed in our reporting. That's my understanding. I mean, that's certainly why um, they, you know, got rid of Harvey um, and Harvey Hildebrand. And, you know, a lot of these people were part of his regime. What I basically. think is interesting is most people don't think about the facilities you know and you think about big state agencies you think right, about HHSC, you agencies. think about TxDOT, right. you think about the it's a billion dollar agency, it's a billion dollar wow. agency yeah. and every government building has a dotted line or a straight line back to work done at the facilities commission so it's not an insignificant thing and as you point out there have been a bunch of government buildings that have been falling on disrepair and that ultimately falls itself back onto the Facilities Commission. Correct. And eight people. I mean, that's kind of like we're now getting to the levels of the TABC after you upended that agency. Yes, yeah, actually, uh, I think there were seven at TABC. This was nine altogether. Mm -hmm. So, Have you guys mm -hmm. heard anything from Harvey Hildebrand in the aftermath of this? We heard from him right after in January. We have. And, and Harvey feels like, you know, he was blamed for a lot of things that weren't his fault and also that um, he he's proud of his tenure there at the agency 
um, as we you know we quoted his statement and all of that. Is he um, surprised that any that the rest of these people got canned? I think the people that were surprised were I mean the his his the people who supported Harvey there on the board there were it were two it, the vote was there was two mm-hmm. va- voted in favor of Harvey Wright and I think was it five to two or it was five to two five to two. Basically, what happened in the interim, which I guess is maybe what helped help them oust Harvey, is um, and if you watch public meetings of the of the commission in the past, it seemed like the oversight board was split pretty evenly, so they were kind of in a stalemate. And then between December and January at this public meeting when Harvey ended up being fired, um, there were three new oversight board members appointed, two by Abbott and then one by Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. And so all those guys were probably pretty ready to clear. Exactly. So all three of them voted with the other two to fire Harvey and then two that had supported Harvey in the past. You know, Abbott's been interesting in this regard because he's pretty you know he's pretty reactive when these types of things happen i mean i think you've had there have been some previous governors who i think wouldn't be as quick to sort of demand that house cleanings happen but whether it was the tabc or this case or you know i'm, I'm hearing your assumption are, is that it comes from above oh absolutely i mean especially yeah. when new appointees are are coming in he seems like somebody who's like says i'm not going to sit around and wait for this to become even messier well, than no, it already is. You have to believe that if you're the governor and you have a sprawling bureaucracy that's in your control, no hot messes on my watch right. has to be the rule of mm. the day. Even but, if it's not a hot mess that you have anything to do with creating, ultimately, if it happens on your watch, it's your responsibility. Right. But there have been some hot messes. I mean, you know, HHSC. HHSC, uh, in some respects, mm-hmm. continues to be a hot mess. Yeah. A hot mess. Um, but TABC and, and, you know, and, and look, I mean, let's accept that TABC, the Facilities Commission, and then, you know, what Jay did on the, on the reporting on Victor, inter Victor Vandergrift, right. the Transportation yep. Commissioner, who copped to what you uh, had said he had done, which was to bill the taxpayers for expenses associated with private client work. He subsequently resigned. It, it is getting to be that the worst five words in Texas these days are Jay Root is on the phone. That's probably six <laughs> words. Is on, is on the, the phone. phone. Six Evan. words. Yeah. I went into journalism not Jay to do Roots math, Emily. Jay yeah. Root. Okay, if I make it, if I, if I make it that, that's actually better. But the point is, yeah, I don't want people to be scared to pick up the phone for me. Mm-hmm. Oh, if, so. if anybody heard you on the phone every day, as I have the great pleasure of doing two feet from my <laughs> office, sorry about they, they it. We be, planned this office, new office space, perfectly. I looked, really at the, I looked at the layout of the new office, and I was like, Jay Root is right near me. Crap. Yeah, but you know, he's got to listen to you too, so it goes. Both no, I ways. keep my door closed the whole time. That's right. I operate in secret. Do you I'm both an think we can't Republic. hear you behind your closed doors? Yes, I, that's exactly. How All right. Well, a quick reminder: if you're listening to this tripcast on iTunes, please take a second to review us and subscribe. Here's a great one this week from someone named Beefbane. If you like your Texas political chili spiced with sarcasm that burns like fresh jalapenos, then this is the podcast for you. Thoughtful, balanced reporting that doesn't take itself too seriously. The lamest thing I've ever heard. I like that. The lame (laughs) beef bane. Evan does not really think you're the lamest thing he's ever heard. Uh, Okay, Evan, late last week, the Mueller indictments came down, the long-awaited charges around Russian Russian tampering and possible collusion in the 2016 presidential election. And there is, as there always is, a... Texas connection. Well, there are two Texas connections. Two, actually. Yeah. Uh, one is that the the bad actors from Russia had apparently, according to the Mueller indictment, been in communication with a, uh, someone from a, a grassroots group in Texas. The identity of this group is not yet known. The individual's identity is not yet known. There's quite a lot of speculation, but nobody knows who this individual is. Right. Everybody's like looking at each other, right. being like, "You think it was me? Could and it have been me?" This individual apparently did two things that caught the attention of the uh, special prosecutor. One was uh, suggested that there was work to be done in the purple states to try to disrupt the election. 
And I gather that that's then work that was followed through on, suggestions that were followed through on. But the second thing was um, this individual promised to share Facebook uh, events, listings, and, and notifications of, of plans to do things that would have um, embraced the ultimate mission of these disruptors uh, 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 over in Russia. And then there's a part B to this, which is that in the disruption of various campaigns with the ultimate benefit going to the Trump campaign, the Clinton campaign was targeted, the Rubio campaign was targeted, and Ted Cruz's campaign was targeted. And I actually think there's not been nearly enough on that. That's my favorite part of this That's whole my story. favorite part of it also, is that the Russians uh, uh, messed with Ted Cruz on behalf of Donald Trump. Uh, there's been very little said that I'm aware of about that. A lot more focus on, well, who is this individual from the grassroots group? Um, Versus that they were out to get Ted Cruz. I mean, yeah. and, and my, the best irony of all of this is that poor Ted Cruz, when he was running against David Dewhurst for Senate, got the big campaign against him was, quote, Red Ted. Right. You know, they were accusing right. you know, him of I basically helping that, communists, yeah. helping the cause of right. communism. Specifically, it was around it was, China. It was China, right. Yeah, but, right. but I mean, I do think it's pretty hilarious that the China. guy they were trying to build as Red Ted actually got targeted by the Russians. Look, Cruz has been largely supportive of the Trump agenda. Um, and up through and including the messaging uh, in the aftermath of these indictments that, you right. know, Cruz basically, you know, retweeted, the, re retweeted right. the Trump notion that this is a largely exonerating uh, event for the, you know, suggestions or suspicions that there mm -hmm. was somehow collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. Um, remember that Donald Trump during the campaign, effectively said Heidi Cruz is ugly, and Rafael Cruz, Ted Cruz's father, father, was involved with killing John Kennedy. And he questioned whether Cruz was legitimately a citizen of this country to the extent that, under the Constitution, he could run for president. None of which Trump ever apologized for. This was a bone of contention. When I got to interview Cruz the day after he finally endorsed Trump in 2016, um, I said to him, "You know, basically, you're." you're agreeing to endorse him despite the fact that he said all this stuff about your family and about you and you never got an apology for it. I'm not aware that Trump has ever publicly or privately copped to having said all this stuff about oh. Cruz. Now, Cruz in the sense that Trump says bad things about everybody, Cruz in good company. But, you know, yet another offense uh, committed against, totally. uh, against Cruz in a Cruz campaign. Well, Catherine wants to know on social media, does Ted still think this is a big nothing burger? Have you I mean, heard anything from him? The I mean, that's I'm what, assuming that's not Catherine Frazier. Maybe she uh, wants no, to know what her own boss thinks. Catherine the, with a K. Yeah. Um, so far, I mean, what I read is yeah, probably what you read, which right. is that Cruz considers this to be largely a non-issue and a non-story, and there's nothing to the investigation to the extent that this indictment. Which you know, I find a little surprising, uh, you know, bordering on shocking, given that Russians mm -hmm. in, you know, uh, some building in St. Petersburg, Russia, um, planned uh, uh, activities in Texas helped foment and I, I understand there were only like I don't know mm -hmm. a dozen people at this rally in Houston but that that led you know to, to verbal and almost physical apparently confrontations right. in, in downtown Houston yeah. and regardless of how small it was the fact that there were Russian agents doing this is I, I just I still think it's shocking how does so I mean one Crazy. thing that I was thinking about this morning is so the Russian agents were, weren't even necessarily at these rallies they were just spurring these people right. to come to these things I mean you think all these attendees like get to these events and look at each other and think like who's in charge here yeah. or they just is Facebook is, is that powerful this is really a modern world up? thing you know I think I think we're watching the disruption of, of our political system 
remotely. It's bad enough to consider it happening in person. Well, it's but like this is like tech, science tech, fiction yeah, coming cyber true. War. It's, it's an act of cyber it is war, cyber basically. War. And I mean, again, the very people who are, to my mind, the very people who are sitting on their hands and not expressing outrage over the disruption of our political system mm-hmm. um, in a previous era at the suggestion that somehow the Russians were meddling with, with us would have been the loudest. Yeah, I mean, the Russians critic. are coming is supposed to be a joke, but yeah. it actually happened this time. Yeah. Right. All right, well, Evan, your behavior better improve because your daughter is watching. Oh, great. <laughs> um, uh, if, and Carson and everybody else, if you have any last-minute questions, please send them our way. Right. Uh, Jay, I want to talk about a campaign finance analysis you and your colleague Ryan Murphy knocked out this week showing just where donors are spending their political cash in the lead-up to the primary. What did you learn? You know, it's a little bit of a uh, dog bites man story, but it's just so over the, you know, dog really bites man hard because it's a 90% figure here. Dog only bites conservative man. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we, we knew that Republicans were dominant in Texas. That's not uh, a shocker. But right. that that almost 90 cents of every dollar is going into state Republican coffers. Uh, a third of which, of course, is, is one person, Greg Abbott. The guy is a great. Yeah, but that was between that was between what period of time and what period of time? January first, two thousand seventeen, through the thirty-day reports, which ended on January twenty-fifth. So about thirteen months. But does not and, include and congressional. Does right. not include congressional. I mean, how much does the because we think about you the you know really, there were yeah. there were something like like eleven Democrats who mm-hmm. just in the fourth quarter of twenty. Uh, 17 raised about $200,000 or more. And of course, Beto O'Rourke raised $2.2 million just mm-hmm. in the first 45 days of right. 2018. So theoretically, the congressional numbers would skew that a little right. bit better in the favor of Democrats. Think, and I mean, you, right? you have a national contest going on and you have uh, national donors like thinking, hey, this the way this district is drawn and you know the way the winds are blowing, I think we can do a pickup here and that's gonna give us a Democratic speaker. Mm-hmm. We don't have that kind of play in the state elections, right? Yeah, and right. so, but and but the the size of these donations, Greg Abbott got a dozen donations of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Wow! It's just it's mind blowing. And the 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 nearest the the largest Democratic donation was uh, in the race. I, I don't want to mispronounce the woman's name. Mary Sue Femath, I think, is her name. She was the is the challenger to Mary Gonzalez in District uh, 75. She's being funded largely by the Tiwa Indians, right? Right. That's why that race is competitive and because they're pouring a bunch of money in. Right. Right. She's a member of that tribe. It's called uh, Isleta Pueblo del, del Sur. Right. So if you think about that, Greg Abbott got 25 contributions of. He how, got he got 12 contributions me, of 250. 12 contributions. Right? So that's basically three million dollars. Right. So 12 people gave Greg Abbott three million dollars. That 2.2 million. it all on other people's races. That, well, yeah. yeah, we should be talking about that. The 2.2 million that Beto O'Rourke raised in the 45 days of 2018 for, was 43,000 contributions. So Beto O'Rourke got 2.2 million from 43,000 uh-huh. when during this period right. that you're reporting on, Greg Abbott got three million from 12 people. Right. Correct. Right. right. And who are some yeah, of those? I mean, do we? Who are some of those big donors? People on social media <laughs> want to know. Cough, cough. Our donors. Cough, cough. Uh, yeah. Well, that's for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, we need to deal with. Right. Yeah. I mean, who are these people who are sort of you consistently see making these yeah. biggest donations? I mean, yeah. There's sort of like uh, there's kind of a usual suspects list. Um, you know, um, Jav- am I going to mispronounce his name? Javed Anwar. Javed Anwar. Javed Anwar. In, in Midland, oil and gas. Right. He's given a ton. Is Tim of money. Dunn on this list? Carol wants um, to know. Empower Texans did 
chip in uh, to Abbott, as I recall, but not in a huge, huge way. One imagines um, Kelsey Warren is probably on Kelsey that list. Kelsey Warren's on is, the list. Uh, Fried, Dan Friedkin Dan from Friedkin, the Toyota. Elf State's Toyota. Dan Friedkin's father in 1969 right. signed a deal with Toyota Motor Company, and it's like a license to right. print I mean, money. And, and look, and this is, uh, you have <laughs> to say, the, 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 the days of Harold Simmons and Bob Perry as the largest, and Jim Leininger as the large right. Republican donors have really given way to a new crop of people who pretty consistently over the last couple of election cycles have stepped up in a hugely significant way. There's another guy on there named James Pitcock, mm -hmm. and he, uh, Williams Brothers Construction, and he throws his money around to a lot of people, including yes. uh, he gave two $250,000 uh, dollar donations, aka a half a million dollars. So when we po when we post this uh, tripcast, Emily, I'm just telling you a little business here. On uh, we should identify uh, Mr. Anwar and Mr. Pitcock as donors to the Texas yeah. Tribune. Thank you, fundraiser in chief yeah. Evan yeah. Smith. Uh, what's been the most expensive House race, Jay, so far, and then the most expensive Senate race? Do you know those off the top um, of your head? I do know that the most expensive House race is the Garen Beau French race because. Um, the Empower Texans put in uh, 200000 their their PAC put in $200,000 for Beau French, so that, that pumped the numbers up. Here's a little trivia for you. One right. of our reporters, Emma Platoff, just called Charlie Guerin and asked him, you know, innocently, why Empower Texans was out to get him, and he said to her, that is the most ignorant question any reporter has ever asked me. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yep. So it's Char Charlie Guerin's race. Right. And, and the most expensive Senate race... Um, I, I don't want to. I don't want to get that is wrong. That, I, I think it may be a race. race. I, I, I would have to. I if I were betting, it would be Estes. Hall, no, well, I was going to bet be. it was Estes Fallon, but we'd have to go back and look. Yeah, I'd have to go back and look. It's you, one of those two. You think um, it's Estes Fallon and not? Yeah. It, it's not the the um, Angela Paxton race. Oh, it would have oh, to. Oh, oh well, no, it would no, have no, to no, be. No, we didn't. We didn't count loans because it was just the way it's reported. The data reported. That's like Rocky Four. That race. That's the one. I will break you. And well, Ken Paxton guaranteed a two million dollar. I'm waiting for Bobby to tell me on this handy as well, device so that, that I we didn't count at. loans because it was. But you think about it, Huffines is personally wealthy. Paxton has gotten a two million dollar guarantee loan from her husband, the Attorney General, and you right. just have to think that in that case you couldn't. What, what I other, win. What it's Huffines and Paxton. It has to be Huffines Paxton. Mm -hmm. yeah. What other race okay. could possibly be that? Well, speaking right. of that, that race, um, there was a pretty key endorsement for Angela Paxton this week. Right. Evan, you want to tell us about that? So the lieutenant governor, who has largely stayed out or has in indicated his intention to stay out of many of these competitive Senate primaries, has now said, no, this is the time when I need to get more involved. And so he has uh, announced his support for certain candidates. Some of them are not really in particularly um, competitive races. Some of them are in races that, you know, are kind of marginally competitive. Um, and then there are a handful of races in the Republican side in the Senate that are actually pretty spicy. The Bob Hall, Cindy Burkett race, he is for Bob Hall. The, spicy. The Fallon Estes race, he's for Fallon. Um, uh, and the Angela Paxton, Philip Huffines race, which is an open race, the Estes and the Hall races mm -hmm. are distinguished by the fact that you have incumbents with challengers. In one case, Lieutenant Governor supporting the incumbent, in one case, he's supporting the challenger. Um, you know, he could have stayed out of that race. It's it's a challenging uh, situation. On the one hand, Angela Paxton's husband is the Attorney General, Lieutenant Governor's mm -hmm. former colleague in the Senate mm -hmm. and a fellow statewide elected official and fellow, uh, uh, you know, conservative capital C times 10 times 10. Um, in the case of Philip Huffines, his brother is Don Huffines, the state senator who is a colleague of Lieutenant governors in the Senate and yeah. who he you know needs mm -hmm. to be carrying the agenda of the Republicans and the conservatives in the Senate so you know it's 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 tricky 
from a political yeah, standpoint. Boy, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in right? those conversations. But he ultimately he's gone with Angela Paxton, and he said, I could not bear the personal attacks on Angela Paxton, and so I've had to get off the sidelines. Um, you know, I think depending upon where you stand on that race, you view the other campaign as having made more attacks and more personal attacks and, and done more that seems uh, a, a below personal. board or above yeah. board, depending upon how you look at it. Um, it is going to be a fight to the finish. Now, there's polling. There was a story out yesterday that suggested that there's an Angela Paxton poll that had her up significantly over Philip Huffines. I'm not going to believe the outcome of this race until I see it on, on, uh, on paper. Uh, they're the only two in that race, so there's no runoff possibility. So we'll know on primary day who the winner is. Um, you know, I've always wondered about that race. The, 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 a lot is made of the family relationships of the two candidates. You know, I've wondered, for instance, if Philip Puffines is elected, there are there'd be 20 Republicans at the best scenario. Best case here is that there are 20 Republicans in the Senate. You need 19 to bring up a bill. So you've got two Huffines brothers in the Senate. If they're all of a sudden a Huffines caucus, where the Huffines brothers could decide to bring the business of the Senate to a, to a halt if they elected. Him. I secretly wonder if Don even wants his brother in the Senate. But on the flip <laughs> side, well, on the flip side of that, the fact that you have the Attorney General's wife in the Senate, I just mm -hmm. wonder how. You know what? What, do, what does that do to the dynamic there as it relates to, say, members of the Senate or the Lieutenant Governor requesting opinions from the Attorney General's office? Like, how does it weird out the relationship between? Look, the two? Either way, we're going right. to have some weird conflicts to report on over there. Well, I mean, it, 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 it's sort of the. It is a strange. It, it, I don't think there's been a race like this before yep. in the history of the legislature where you had two people who had those family associations. So we'll see. All right, well, that's all the time we have this week. If you like listening to the TribCast, please do us a favor and leave us a review on iTunes. And if you value the Tribune's nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom, please consider making a donation at support.texastribune.org. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music and to Accenture, the Texas Association of Community Colleges, and the Texas Association of School Boards, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Evan, Jay, Shannon, and our producers, Todd and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Testing, testing, testing. Under 3, 4, 5.